0: There was a powerful statement shared on the UN Women website that read, a single moment can spark a revolution. Collective actions can transform laws. Creative expression can change attitudes and an invention can alter the course of history. It's these threads that weave together to propel the women's movement, even in the face of obstacles. The history of women in government and policy is a long and complex one marked by struggles for equality, representation, and recognition. From the early pioneers who fought for suffrage to the trailblazing women who shattered glass ceilings in politics, women have played an essential role in shaping government and policy in the United States. In 1848, the first Women's Right Convention took place in Seneca Falls, New York which was led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. Both women gathered hundreds of people and demanded civil, social, political, and religious rights for women in a declaration of sentiments and resolutions. On March 8, 1911, the first International Women's Day was marked by more than one million people across Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland gathered for women's suffrage and labor rights. Fast forward to 1946, in the inaugural session of the UN General Assembly, Eleanor Roosevelt read an open letter to the women of the world sharing the importance of women's involvement in national and international affairs. For aviation history, from 1997 to 2022, Jan Garvey became the first female administrator of the FAA under the Clinton administration. Garvey, who was the daughter of an Air Force colonel, worked as the airport director for Boston Logan International Airport in the early 1900s, and then went on to serve as the first deputy administrator for the U.S. Federal Highway Administration for four years. Her successor was another woman, Marion Blakey, who became the 15th administrator to the FAA, The history of women in transportation, policy and government is inspiring. But with only 28% of women in Congress, 30% of statewide elective executive offices led or co-led by women, and with only 31% of seats and state legislation held by women, we still have a long way to go. We simply need more women in government and policy roles to help grow society, especially aviation. Here are a few reasons why women should consider a career in government. The first is representation. Women are underrepresented in government and policy positions. So it's essential to have more women in these roles to bring a diverse perspective and experiences to the table. The second is influence. Women in government and policy have a significant impact on the policies and decisions that affect the lives of women and girls every day. They can advocate for policies that promote gender equality, addresses issues such as the gender pay gap, and improve access to health care and education for women. Leadership. By pursuing careers in government and policy, women can become leaders and role models for other women and girls. Networking. Working in government can provide women with the opportunity to network with other influential leaders. Build relationships and gain valuable experience and skills. And finally, progress. This is the progress that women in the United States need. Women in government and policy can help drive progress and create positive change in society. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantic Aviation. Atlantic Aviation provides aircraft ground support in over 100 FBOs across North America, including locations in Hawaii and the Caribbean. I am proud to be partnered with a company that puts their people first and highly values diversity and inclusion. Atlantic Aviation's vision and mission is evident through the relentless focus on culture, safety, and service. Experience the Atlantic attitude today. Check out www.atlanticaviation.com to see all 100 plus locations and plan your next visit. Our guest on the Aviate with Shasta podcast this week is Linda Tran. Tran serves as a Director of Public Engagement and Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Department of Transportation. A longtime organizer and communicator with over two decades of experience in policy, advocacy, and campaigns, Linda returns to the Department of Transportation after co-founding 270 Strategies where she developed public engagement strategies for clients across the globe. Linda joins us to talk about her role in the Department of Transportation, shares how women can better advocate for themselves on matters like maternity leave and equal pay, and shares her thoughts on the history of Asian Americans in aviation. Linda, welcome. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the Aviate with Shasta podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on as a guest. So Linda, just to get to know you a little bit better, take us back to when you were young, where did you grow up and what was one of your most fondest childhood
1: memories? Oh, um, well, let's see. I grew up, I I tend to say that I claim two childhood locations. So I was born in Baltimore, but we moved immediately to Houston, Texas when I was a tiny little one. And so um, some of my earlier memories are really those days when I lived um, off of Stubner Airline in Houston. And, um, you know, we. We were a hardcore, hardworking working class family, so you know the money was tight, and um, you know I was always trying to do well in school and and um, work towards a better future. In terms of fondest memories, I would say it's certainly from the time I was in Houston. We used to always go fishing in this nearby bayou. Uh, it was what we called it, although I'm sure it falls far short of what the Department of Interior would describe as a bayou. But um, just catching. You know crawdads and uh, perch and and bringing those home. Those were those were fun times. Just being dirty and being a kid.
0: Oh, that's amazing! I actually moved to Houston, um, and so I'm getting used to just the area. And it's it really is a great place. Very different from I feel like anywhere else that I've lived in.
1: Yeah, Houston is special. I mean, when I was there, I definitely thought I was going to be a cowgirl, um, despite the (laughs) fact that it is quite urban and suburban. Uh, But you know, by now, uh, being located there, there's the whole Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, which folks have long been very proud of. So um, that was what what settled in my brain.
0: That's amazing. And did you, like, what were some of the things that you aspired to do when you would, like, grow up as you were a young kid? Was being in transportation or politics... Anywhere on the radar?
1: Um, I would say yes and no. I mean, certainly, I mean, I mean it. I really thought I was going to be a cowgirl, even though um, (laughs) I didn't have the chance to ride horseback or anything along those lines when I was little. Uh, If you could count that as a form of transportation, that was certainly on my, my dream list. Um, But, you know, my family uh, was actually highly active in politics when they uh, lived in Vietnam. And so I grew up hearing lots of stories about how my um, grandfather on my mother's side of the family, who was a foreign minister to the last emperor of Vietnam, You know, I I would always hear these stories about the types of adventures he had. Uh, My mom and my dad were organizers um, during the the middle of the last century and um, were very politically active as well. You know, they were part of the movement of students that were um, involved during the Vietnam War and during the pre-Vietnam War era, where you saw those amazing images of um, monks setting themselves on fire in protest. My my parents were part of that set of, in you know, passionate and idealistic organizers. So I always heard these kinds of stories, and it was em- emphatically emphasized on me very early in life that you needed to be involved in the world and to be active in your community if you were going to shape it to be the kind of place that you wanted to live in.
0: So, I did not have the chance to go to Vietnam when I was flying around the world, but I did with my mentor Barrington Irving, who I um I know that you got the chance to meet him recently. Um and with Barrington, we did this tour together uh in Asia. And I went to Vietnam and it was just like the most amazing food, the most incredible uh, people. And it was so cool to talk to the girls about flying because most of them were very shy and just telling them that aviation's an option um, and just opening their eyes to the possibilities in aviation. That was just such a cool experience that I hold near and dear to me. Uh, But that's really cool that your parents were involved, um, you know, back in your home country uh, in, in the government. So that's that's
1: really cool. Yeah, and I, and you want to know what it's a fun fact is that my uh, my grandparents on my mother's side of the family were I would say quite modern. From the very start. In fact, uh, one of the dreams that my grandfather had for my mom before he passed away was he actually wanted her to be the first female pilot in Vietnam. That did not come to be. Um, You know, war and strife and all kinds of other disruptions and disturbances really um, set that dream off track. But but yes, when she was a little girl, he used to uh, cut her hair really short and dress her like a boy and tell her (laughs) you can do anything you put your mind to. But specifically, he wanted her to be a pilot wow have you ever
0: thought about getting your wings was that ever something
1: so I haven't from a professional perspective but I will tell you that um, every time I've had the great privilege of being in a helicopter I have always thought I should learn how to fly a helicopter including you know just a few months ago um, seeing Orlando from um, from the great big bubble in the sky I mean that was just (laughs) awesome and, and always makes me think how cool it would be to do that
0: oh that's so amazing Um, so I'd love to just to talk a little bit about, uh, your current profession. Um, so as you currently work as a senior advisor to the secretary, as well as the director of public engagement, um, I'm just curious, what does your usual workday look like, if there is such thing as a usual workday for you?
1: <laughs> well, the, the spoiler alert is there really is no usual workday. It is, it is different every single day. It is an exciting adventure every single day, and it can range dramatically. So Uh, I may, for example, wake up and need to give some remarks and stand behind a lectern for a period of time or participate in a panel discussion or, you know, in this world that we're living in right now, you and I are speaking to each other virtually. And so we do a lot of webinars and those types of activities to make sure that we're able to share out information to the American people, in particular at the U.S. Department of Transportation right now. As folks may be aware, and we've got about $660 billion flowing through the department as a result of the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and another $10 billion as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that has led to a tremendous transformation within the department writ large and across all of the subcabinet agencies, including, of course, at the FAA. And um, what that means is that I spend a lot of time sharing information with people so that they can access those resources so that we can, you know, rebuild this country in a way that is as effective, efficient, and as equitable as possible. So any given day, I might be talking about those things. I also run a a sizable team of of folks. So um, lots of relationship building along different work streams, anything ranging from, you know, the safety advocacy movement to climate and environmental organizations to private sector entities and labor unions. We are continually, um, you know, Creating this feedback loop that that um, gives us information that um, that we need to inform our work and also um, to get the word out there on opportunities and ideas and information that stakeholders outside of the department need as well. So there's a sort of operational side of things, and then on occasion I get to do the 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 random cool adventure, like hopping in a helicopter and sitting on stage with people like you. So um, it's it's a quite the quite the interesting job.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds like it. There's so much there. And the Department of Transportation is just so huge when you look at that umbrella and all that you all do, it's it's quite fascinating. Um, I'm also, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are in aviation, and we would just love to hear with all of the exciting innovations that are happening right now, like urban air mobility, sustainable aviation fuels and even space travel. What are you most excited about since you're in the heart of all of this great work? Well, I'm not
1: supposed to pick any favorite children. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so I won't, not really, but I have to tell you that, you know, some of those things that you just outlined and highlighted on the aviation side of things are just literally the stuff that dreams are made of, right? I mean, my I've got three children, my youngest is four, and on a regular basis, he tells me he wants to be an aviator. He tells me he wants to be an astronaut. And so there's something about wings, you know, that really inspires children, inspires people in a way that I think is a real standout and and pretty remarkable. Um, And I also, having worked on climate advocacy for um, a a great number of years now, you know, anything that has to do with electrification, anything that has to do with reducing our overall carbon footprint and and reducing emissions, which, you know, some of those areas that you just described are clearly going to be a critical component in in getting us there. Those types of things just really excite me. I, I just find it really fascinating. And then last, but certainly not least in the aviation field, maybe more than than other sectors that we deal with at the department. There are just a lot of entrepreneurs and interesting startups and, and people with brilliant, great ideas about their specific cut at how to, to solve the world's problems. And, and I just find it fascinating every single day.
0: Yeah, no, it is. I feel like right now, it's just such an exciting time to be in aviation with all of these exciting innovations. And I totally get it. It's hard to pick what are you most excited about. Um, but it's, it's just a good time to be in this field. So um, I'm enjoying
1: it a lot. Yeah, it's also exciting and interesting to me to meet people like you. I mean, to be Perfectly oh. candid, uh, I came home after meeting you and meeting Barrington, and as you know, I I ended up having the great opportunity to go over and check out his flying classroom and and to meet with some of the team there, see the various planes and and um, uh, different sorts of vehicles that they they're working on with students around the country. I just I find the opportunity to hear about the types of things that you all are doing, very motivating and inspiring. And I try to share out on those stories as much as I can as well.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Barrington is a great mentor and we're both working together to, to just reach a different audience. Um, because aviation, it is very male dominated and we want more minorities and, and women especially to to join this exciting industry. So uh, we appreciate you taking the time to come out and get to learn about these things that we are doing. Um, So thank you for that. Absolutely. Uh, So Linda, in preparation for this um, interview, I did just went through your incredible website, which is so (laughs) inspiring, all that you do on top of being a mom of three. um, I see that a lot of your work is In advocacy and communication. And I would love to just tap into that um, and ask you some questions uh, just so that our audience can just learn from how you navigated around um, your career and just any sort of takeaways that you could pass along to them. Sure. Happy to do it. Where shall we start? Okay. So with aviation being a male-dominated industry, how can women better advocate for themselves with items like better maternity leave, equal pay, and even pathways to professional
1: growth? Well, you know what? I think in this industry, just like in many other industries that have traditionally been led by men, often by uh, Caucasian men, the first big step is really just to get people in the door in the first place. And to lift up um, women in aviation, just like you're doing right now, really, you know, sets the foundation for those much more complicated, I think, uh, more challenging advocacy fights around the, the types of benefits and, and um, on the job needs that women uniquely have. So, um, first and foremost, I mean... Snaps to you again and and to other women who are really leading the way because by virtue of being there and being in the room and being in the conversation, you're changing the way that people think about aviation. Um, And then when it comes to the actual specifics of um, maternity leave, parental leave in general, I mean, I think this is a conversation that has continued to evolve in this country. I think it helps that. You know, we have a president right now sitting over on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who really believes in uh, parental leave and the benefits of of creating a family, no matter you know what your gender or what walk of life you have. And so, um, really taking advantage of those conversations and interjecting and inserting uh, women like yourself into those rooms, I think, is really really important. And last but not least, uh, if you don't ask, you don't get. So, I mean, I would just encourage uh, women in this industry and in every other that um, when you have the opportunity to make the case about why it matters, um, to do so. Don't hesitate. There's there's nothing wrong ever with asking for what you need. And by raising your voice, you then inspire others to stand up there alongside you. And that's, you know, the first step towards making change.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice and, you know, snaps to you too for being a woman who's you know, Asian American, and doing the important work that you're doing, um, I think that that's really inspiring to see. And so, when I met you, I immediately thought we have to get her on our podcast <laughs> so that her voice can be heard and and for people to know that you're there, um, you know, working in the department.
1: Thank you, I, I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um. So I'm curious to know when you look into aviation history, you find prominent Asian Americans who have contributed significantly to the growth of aviation. For example, you have Catherine Sue Fun Chung, who's the first Asian-American aviator ever. And then you have Hazel Ying Lee, one of the first um, American licensed female pilots. And then when you look at the space world, uh, Taylor Wing is the first Asian-American to go into space. How do you personally feel when you read about these historical, figures, and all that
1: they've done um, in the aviation industry. You know, I have the same thought as I have any time I see the word first next to somebody's name, and especially so when it's a woman, and, and doubly, triply so when it's a woman of color. Um, I mean, I could ask you the very same question. I, it's part of what's so inspiring about your story. And what I, I always think about is, is how hard it must have been to be the first anything. Right. And um, and how incredibly um, grateful I am that people take these leaps of faith into the the challenging unknown and then end up being these trailblazers who, you know, will teach my daughter about and will teach your daughters about, you know, one day. Um, I, I think that these stories and sharing them out are uh, literally the most important thing we could be doing if you want to diversify, expand the field, because people enter into Career paths and um and professions because they see others that look like themselves. But again, I always think how hard it must have been to be the first.
0: Yeah, I think it was Sally Ride who said, "You can't be what you can't see."
1: Exactly. Um, and
0: yeah, it is. But it, you know, another part of it too is I feel like I I hadn't heard about these incredible aviators until I really went out there and dug deep. Um, how do you think we as an industry can just better shape the narrative? So that maybe when you hear about Amelia Earhart, you also hear about Hazel Ying Lee. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is how can we better shape the narrative
1: of aviation history so that it's just more inclusive? I mean, I start I, I think you start by doing what you're doing right now, which is uh, identifying those women, identifying those names, and lifting them up. Um, I feel like it's an internal ongoing process. and I say this as somebody who works for a trailblazer right now, right? I mean, he's certainly um, a remarkably brilliant human being, but he also happens to be the first sitting openly gay cabinet member. And similarly, I think about, you know, what that means for people around the country to be able to see it. I think he is um, particularly mindful and really open about um, highlighting amazing leaders, um, It was just a few months ago, actually, that uh, we had this whole discussion about a a woman who worked in transportation who was the person who created GPS – and I think people don't really, you know, people don't really think about um, the, the origins of these technologies and tools that we use on a regular basis. But the point being, you know, you, you find that those people, you lift up their story and you get the information out. And by so doing, um, you know, people start to become uh, aware of it and they become your ambassadors. And you're doing that right now by sharing out on these, these women's stories about how they were the trailblazers in aviation.
0: Thank you, Linda. So now I'd love to just kind of uh, talk a little bit about some of the responses to the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018. Um, If you're in the aviation industry, I feel like in the last couple of years, you've heard a lot about the Youth Access to American Jobs and Task Force, the task force that was put together by the DOT and the FAA, as well as the Women in Aviation Advisory Board. Both um, groups have came out with recommendations. And I'd love to just Get an update on you know where things are with it, um, if that's
1: okay with you. What I can tell you is that one of the things that has really struck me about the team that is leading the FAA right now and their chiefs of staff, their deputy chiefs of staff and their associate administrators there there is this incredible cohort of true women leaders and champions who are focused on a daily basis. I can assure you on how do we expand access to the industry? How do we ensure that we're not only opening the door to the next generation of aviators, but we're doing so in a way that really um, is grounded in equity, is centered on bringing more women in, is centered on bringing in more students of color. And, um, And as part of that, just recognizing that The challenges, the hurdles, the obstacles are different depending on whether you're a woman or not. They're different depending on whether you come from a community of color or not. They're different depending on whether or not you grew up in um, what we would define as a historically disadvantaged part of the country. Um, So, you know, the first step being to recognize that these differences exist. And then the second step being to put leadership in, you know, in the chair that is mindful of this and doing the work that is required in order to change that for the future.
0: Well, we're really excited to hear what's going to come of these recommendations reports. So we'll be on standby um, as the FAA takes all of this into account. Um, Linda, I would love just to hear from you. uh, What advice can you share with women who may be considering a career in government, especially in the aviation sector?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I think my advice is not dissimilar here than it would be in really any other no major, um, professional, uh, choice or professional decision that, that, that a woman might be thinking about. I mean, the first is really, you know, if possible, find yourself a mentor, you know, you can always throw spaghetti up against the wall and, and, um, try as try, uh, try and try to, 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 get, um, your foot in the door and make some progress, but it's always easier if you have somebody and you know this, right? I mean, Barrington, as you said, as as your mentor, somebody who's already walked that path can help you get there faster. And by the way, is incentivized to do so because they wanna see, you know, more individuals um, who are able to to benefit from the experiences that they had. So first and foremost, find yourself a mentor if you can. Second piece of advice I would give, which you know, sounds uh, like it's echoing what I said a little bit earlier, but but that's just to take risks, you know, especially when you're young in your career, before you may have a mortgage or you before you are saddled with with really big responsibilities. Uh, it's the time to have an adventure and just to go try something. And, you know, uh, one of my own mentors told me not very long ago that when it comes to your professional life, if you make a decision and it turns out it was the wrong one, you just make another one. So the point being... Taking risks and uh, trying new adventures, even if they don't work out, they they take you to another place where you can try a different adventure and and do something um, that may fit you better. But there's always the option. To try something different, so I would definitely find a mentor. I would definitely take some risks, and um, and then last but not least, you're not surprised to hear me say this. I'm a longtime organizer and a longtime communicator. I would orient myself towards sharing those stories. I would orient myself towards sharing any best practices that will, again, you know, pave the way and and uh, soften the ground for others to follow you. Uh, and I would also not be afraid to share out where um, I may have made mistakes, but that they ended up um, helping me be stronger or, or learn to to deal with challenges in the future better.
0: Oh, that's really sound advice. I love all three of them, especially the sense of adventure, because uh, I think sometimes we get so caught up in just career growth and, you know, what's going to help us get there faster. Uh, but sometimes we just have to stop and say, OK, this is supposed to be fun. This is we're young. You know, where's the sense of adventure in this journey of life? So. Really great advice. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So... Linda, it's just been such a pleasure sitting down, getting to know you. I I understand how busy you are and I appreciate you making the time um, for us here on this podcast. Before we go, uh, I just have a couple of really quick rapid fire questions just so that we could get to know you on a personal level. So if you're ready, I'm going to spit out these questions. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Go for it. Yes. All right. So last show that you binged on or the last book that you read.
1: Okay. So I'm in the middle of binging on Friday Night Lights. So I missed the entire wave of excitement around that series, um, but it was recently turned on to it. And I've, I've just been, you know, watching them back to back and uh, having a hard time turning it off. Oh, man. And then the last book I read was to my four-year-old. Um, it was, I'm going to get the title wrong, but it was something like The Pout Pout Fish Saves the Ocean. So it's about uh, cleaning up debris and and garbage in the ocean and and how um, all of the ocean animals got together and did it. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, Favorite city in the world? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, I like a lot of cities, but (laughs) I should say probably, well, first of all, I love the city that I've lived in and uh, around for the last more than two decades, Washington, D.C. But if I had to pick a city and could just set aside you know, all other logistical challenges, it would probably be Paris. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, man. Uh, Last meal. If you could have that request
1: for your last meal, what would it be? Oh, I'm a carnivore. I would definitely (laughs) want to have, you know, an amazing medium rare steak, um, greens, you know, some asparagus or something along those lines, a big mountain of mashed potatoes, um, and some dessert. <laughs> dessert is always very important. Nice, gosh, I'm getting hungry now. Um, <laughs> favorite aircraft? What is my favorite aircraft? It might just be a helicopter, really, of any sort. Although I will tell yeah. you that some of the the newer uh, EV Tall aircraft that I've seen have been really exciting, and I cannot wait to get into one of those. Awesome. And then last question is, what is one of your 2023 resolutions? Oh, my resolution is is one I thought about quite a lot. And, and it's pretty straightforward and simple, but it, it's just to be present. You know, I find that, uh, especially in this uh, post COVID world that we're living in, we are racing around in in many ways more than ever before. And just clicking from meeting to meeting and jumping from room to room and And um, and there's also an expectation, I think, that you're always online in a way that didn't exist before. And so then you're distracted as you're in a meeting and you're answering somebody's chat or somebody's text message from uh, from another conversation. So um, I am just trying to be much, much more present.
0: Oh, That's such a great reminder as I like continue on this day is be present. Um, gosh, that, that was great. Linda, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. Um, thank you for making the time to be here with us today.
1: It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it.